0: This episode contains discussions of PTSD and the depiction of traumatic events, including discussion of 9-11 and gun control in the States. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Summer and welcome to the Worms podcast. Worms is a magazine outside of conventional publishing that works across form and genre to bring underrepresented writers to the literary topsoil. And Lauren, I hope you've got a can opener on you because we are about to open a can of worms. (laughs) Lauren Elkin is a writer and translator, most recently the author of Art Monsters, Unruly Bodies in Feminist Art, and the UK translator of Simone de Beauvoir's previously unpublished novel, The Inseparables. Her writing has appeared in a variety of publications, including the London Review of Books, the New York Times, Granta, Harper's Le Monde, the Times literary supplement and freeze. Lauren, welcome to the vodcast. Thank you,
1: Summer. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I'm going to tell that little story. So I was all excited, brought some incense and a candle that I normally use in the bath. I was like, I'm going to make this into a spa. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and
0: turns out you're allergic.
1: I know, I know. I just don't want to fall over <laughs> with a massive migraine and then I'm, that's it, I'm dead.
0: Say so Lauren, we're going to talk about your writing routine, yeah? Okay. So I really want to visualise it, so let's pretend you're writing art monsters. What time do you
1: start writing? It really depends what I have going on. I'm generally the one who drops my son off at school, and that is, takes place at varying times, but around nine, let's say, right now. And then I'm back at my desk by like 9.10, 9.15, so that's when my day starts.
0: And then do you have breaks in between, and, and how long do you write for?
1: I write for basically as long as I have so you know a normal day when I don't have to go anywhere or see anybody and assuming he's at school the whole day which doesn't always happen um, it's like nine to three basically.
0: Is there any days where where you've had a stressful day and you're like oh I really can't be bothered to write today what do you do in those Mm, cases?
1: Yeah that doesn't happen very often because I really have that's like the only time I have to write so yeah I, I don't know I sort of have to get myself into the headspace whether I want to or not I will say it can help to read um you know come back to like I'm sitting here with a copy of Kathy Acker's Bodies of Work next to me Mm -hmm. um it really helps and focuses me to come back to books like that that have been so inspiring that I find different different stuff in every time I go back it's like so meaty and full of vitamins and yeah so I think if I'm feeling stuck it can help to go read something like that and then it kind of centers me or like if I'm like out of tune or something it helps me tune back into what I'm trying to do.
0: Have you ever had phases where you've fallen out of love with writing?
1: Yeah there are definitely times well okay so the good times are when you feel like you've tapped into something that's like you know that's like the sap in a tree like there's something flowing there's something there it's like tapping into a good vein or something and then when it's not going so well, it's when it's, like, kind of a slog and you can't figure out why you wanted to be working on this thing to begin with. Or, as is sometimes the case, you know, I'll have deadlines for bits of journalism or other bits of writing that are well paid but not necessarily, you know, coming from that that place of, like, vitality. Uh-huh. So then it can be hard and you just have to, like, put one sentence down after another and then eventually you get there and you know sometimes you're surprised and it's like oh that's actually okay and sometimes it's like well it's done it's in it's fine.
0: How do you get into the flow or is it very contingent on like you've just said the types of writing that you're doing some you enjoy more some you enjoy less or do you do any meditation or
1: anything Mm. like that? I wish I had the time I really (laughs) I would like to be able to meditate or do I used to do a lot of yoga a big part of what helps me be able to write is getting out of my familiar circumstances it helps to get out on the road so if I'm like on a long train ride say to Edinburgh as I was a couple of weeks ago that can be just I don't know something about moving it like jiggle something loose in you and, and you're I don't know you're seeing people and things that you wouldn't have seen otherwise and something about that can be very fertile and then, so I'm sticking with the topsoil metaphors. <laughs> um, and, but also going to Paris, which is, you know, still my home, even though I'm in London at the moment. Wherever I'm staying in Paris, it's like immediately I'm plugged back into myself. And that's where I can write. Mm, do you journal at all? I do, yeah. I I have sort of all my life, but especially since I was at university. I just sort of developed a journaling practice then. I don't know, it just occurred to me one day. Um, that I could put all the crazy thoughts that I was thinking that were taking up so much space in my head kind of feed them onto the page. And there is something very meditative and therapeutic about your hand mm. moving across the page back and forth. Um, like a
0: stream of consciousness.
1: Yeah, often stream of consciousness or like just pa- like des pensées passagères, like things that kind of breeze through your brain. And then, you know, if you kind of catch them, they might be useful later
0: yeah what is the hardest thing you face in your writing the thing that you dread the
1: most oh that's a really good question um you know i think having trained as an academic is a real double-edged sword in that sense because it's given me both a kind of discipline um for writing and and a technique but it's also trained me to think a certain way and go down certain paths It's feeling like I have to be obedient to some thesis advisor or some, like, phantom peer reviewer. I think I imagine that I have some some academic reader out there who's going to see what I'm doing and call bullshit. (laughs)
0: So you've always got that little bird on your shoulder chirping that, in a sense, it's not intellectual enough.
1: Is that it? It's more that it's not rigorous enough. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about your book, Art okay. Monsters. So Chris Krause says it is destined to become a new classic. And you've been compared to Susan Sontag, Helen Sue, and Maggie Nelson. And then I also went on to Goodreads and I saw a five star review that oh went, <laughs> Lauren Elkin continues to slap. What? <laughs>
1: My God, thank you, person on (laughs) Goodreads. I stay away from Goodreads because, my God, I just, yeah, you don't want to go there.
0: Have you ever read a negative review and and did it affect you in any way or do you just
1: not look at them? Um, I'm not looking at them now because I did for Flaneuse and it really didn't do very much for me in what it's, way well it makes me think that they're not really for the writer it's very infrequent that I come across anything in a review that feels like it's useful to me as a writer That it's helping me do better next time or I don't know it feels like reviews are for the readers who might you know who want to know if they should be picking up this book or what's in it is it any good what's it like you know what's interesting about it mm-hmm. I know that there is a writer who did a broadsheet review that's paywalled and i haven't read it but my editor and another friend of mine were like it's really weird like it ends with some kind of assertion that like white women were not responsible for lynching and like if that's what you take away from my book like a you're factually wrong and that's not what i wrote although she was arguing with me and b like what the fuck (laughs) yeah man (laughs) that's just it's just not true and it's not accurate and it makes me really angry
0: because Lauren I'm putting myself in that situation Mm -hmm. you know I am quite a sensitive soul and you know you're working on this book for ages and then you read something like that
1: do you cry no I I don't cry but I I like it's like forehead slap it's like that's what she took away from my book like Okay, I guess, you know, if the white supremacists are missing the point of my book, that's okay. I must be doing something right. So, yeah, I think it's it's kind of like self-protection to not actually read the words of people taking aim against a book that you've spent a lot of time, you know, researching and working on and, and working through. And it's much more helpful to just focus on the fact that there are some people who I really respect who totally got what I was trying to do and just take that with me and like write the next book.
0: So that's what you do, right? You just listen to the people that you respect and have a close circle of people that love you and support you.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's important, like to have criticism and to have people, you know, tell you what worked and what didn't work. But I just don't find that those people are reviewing in broadsheet newspapers in general.
0: Yeah. So there's a line that inspired the book, right? And it's by Jenny Offill, And it goes, my plan was to never get married, but to be an art monster instead. Mm. So what is an art monster?
1: It's an artist, usually male, who basically only has regard for himself and his own work. There's some kind of opposition between being like a great artist who gives your entire like life over to your work, and being someone who would love to give up everything for your work and to disregard the minutiae of daily life but you can't because you have people who depend on you people you have to take care of so would you consider yourself an art monster that's a really good question I don't I tend I tend not to think that I am I mean (laughs) I possibly I don't know I mean my in, in my household like I am very clear about when I'm working and very disciplined about getting to it and my partner makes a lot of sacrifices so that I have time to work Can I just say something,
0: I loved how when I emailed you, I would get an email saying something like I might take a while to respond back because, and I think you mentioned your son in it, did you? Oh, did I? I don't know. Maybe, and I thought that is cool.
1: Yeah, for professional and and personal reasons this summer, I was taking a long time to get back to people's emails. And
0: I was just thinking, good Um, on you, setting those boundaries and again separating the work time and personal time. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I think that's what you have to do. And, And so, you know, in my household, I think I'm pretty clear about, like, setting the boundaries. But my partner is a composer with his own, you know, artistic practice mm. and so I also try to honor his time and his right to go upstairs and be an art monster up up in his studio so you know it's a it's a balance so when I'm doing
0: something creative I could just say okay right now I'm being an art monster mm-hmm. and then a couple of hours later okay I'm back to myself yeah. now yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. monster.
1: yeah I like that idea of the art monster as someone who's just setting their own boundaries and, and enforcing yeah. them yeah what are some famous art monsters oh god that's a really good question. I mean, I guess I've wrote about a bunch of them in my yeah. book. Kathy Acker, for sure, mm. major art monster. Um, Hannah Wilkie, Carolee Schneeman, Kara Walker, big art monster. Yeah. Would definitely. you consider Virginia Woolf an art monster? Um, I think so, yeah. I mean, she had a such a privileged existence that she sort of didn't have to worry obviously she didn't have children because her doctor said she shouldn't I know she very much wanted to you know Wolf kind of is in a position where she can say I need a room of my own and everyone goes yes you're right wow cool and Vanessa is like it would be nice I kind of wish I would like Uh and she was like you know She's this amazing, brilliant artist who is incredibly monstrous in her work. But in her life, she doesn't look like an art monster because she was a mother. She had several children. She gardened, you know, she <laughs> was like n- going to the Bloomsbury group meetings, just kind of like offering people drinks and things, like not, you know.
0: So, do you personally get more inspired by Vanessa Bell than Virginia Woolf, would you say?
1: Well, I just think Vanessa Bell's life was a lot more, you know, realistic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Woolf wasn't <laughs> just, Woolf was like served by her husband. So, in the sense, you know, she's the a Nabokovian art monster, but Vanessa Bell is the one who's having to negotiate like real obstacles in her life to actually making work. You know, I know it was hard for Wolf to work. I know she had mental health difficulties, but in every other sense, you know, she was set up financially and yeah. personally to make her amazing work.
0: Lauren, when you said Virginia, because I love Virginia Wolf. When you said Virginia Woolf uh, the doctor said she shouldn't have kids Mm -hmm. was that because of her mental health? Yes. Oh was it?
1: Yeah yeah I mean I think at the time there was some sort of not that this was wrong necessarily but there was a kind of thinking that there was a direct correlation between what you did physically with your body and the state of your mental health so it was like she had to just kind of rest and stay in bed and drink a lot of milk that was like the, the rest cure.
0: And she is a snob right? would you say yeah, you? yeah she is isn't but she, she says
1: I mean she there's a whole essay called am I a snob and she's like yeah basically <laughs> <laughs> no way I didn't yeah, know totally. that yeah, it's a great what essay. she wrote an essay saying am I a snob yeah that's the name of the essay <laughs> no way and the conclusion is yes because you know if an aristocrat invites her over for dinner she's like I'm there I'm totally there <laughs> you know anyone else she would have been like oh I don't know I'm kind of tired have some work to do and would she look down on poor people No, she definitely didn't look down on poor people. I don't mean a snob in that sense. She, I think, you know, the problem with with Wolf is she had this very privileged existence and didn't have a lot of experience of people, you know, with uh, other lives than her own. Um, And so she would, you know, try to write about like her cook and just end up being incredibly patronizing. Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) So I think she couldn't necessarily write the lower classes but um she definitely had a very strong feeling of solidarity with them
0: yeah have you been to charleston farmhouse of course yeah, <laughs> yeah. i'm beautiful, going isn't it?
1: i'm there on october 20th isn't it
0: gorgeous the house yeah. i went re- recently for the first time it's oh, my birthday oh. the studio room is my favorite oh god yeah I want my house to be
1: like that. I know, well, get painting. (laughs) Are you going to do yours like that? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) I'm not a very good painter, but my son really loves to um, Mm. draw and paint and stuff. Do
0: you still get homesick to this day? Is your family in the
1: US? Uh, My family's in New York, and I probably get nostalgic for New York, but in no way, shape, or form do I want to live in the States right now. Because of the political situation? Oh, Oh, yeah. I mean, I felt Hmm. that way during, you know the george bush period you know in like 2004 i was like yeah i was like that's it i'm done i'm not going back to that country i i, I cannot cannot countenance the idea of living in america and yeah. like sending my son to school where he would have to do like active shooter drills and learn to hide under his desk in Crazy. case somebody comes to kill him was you in
0: New York during 9/11
1: yeah was, was you yeah. did you see it I did yeah oh my God
0: yeah, what did you lot. see the towers
1: I did yeah <gasps> I worked at the time I was working at the Ellen Levine literary Agency Wow. Um, and we our office was on 26th Street and so we had a view of the World Trade Center every single day and so that particular day I arrived to work and saw like oh my God like just a big burning smoky hole. I'd watched both towers fall with my own eyes. It was the weirdest day. Uh, Did it affect you
0: for time afterwards? I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, I think. I don't know. I I have like pronounced PTSD from having been in Paris in November 2015, um, because all everything that went down was like right by my house, and in cafes and restaurants that I like regularly went to, um, and still, you know, continue to go to even afterward. Um, it was my it was my community. It was my neighborhood. Um, and it happened so close to me. And it was terrifying. Um, but yeah, like I, I yeah, I, 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 yeah, I don't know what to say. Like it's it, it's very um, it's very hard to talk about, but it's also possibly part of why I just kind of stay at home and I didn't, <laughs> don't go anywhere. <laughs> Are you an anxious person, would you say? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Very neurotic, very anxious, um, and probably more so since I've become a mother. Oh, yeah? Because, you know, the thing that you love most in the world is just out there walking around (laughs) and doesn't know how to be careful, necessarily. Are you a protective mom? Super, yeah. (laughs) Massively overprotective. Do you do anything to manage the anxiety? Um, No. Oh, do you not? (laughs) I used to do yoga, and now I don't have time, so it just festers. I went to therapy for a long time. and no longer in therapy i had this really weird experience at the university of where arizona state university a couple of years ago which is um my partner is from tempe and his dad taught at asu and so we were in the library and i was working on art monsters and we were sitting in different parts of the university library now first of all i'm like at this university thinking like this is like there could be like a gunman like, like an open they're, they're like open carry laws in in um or no open carry laws, sorry, in Arizona, you could just like have a gun. And I was like, someone could just like come onto this campus. And we walked into the library, there were no um, metal detectors. It was just, there's no like um, security, It's just like come on into the university library. So we were there and working in different places. And this kid um, at some point approached me, he was kind of staggering toward me. And then he stopped and he kind of looked at me for a long time and I like looked up from what I was doing. I was like, hi. And he just started to sing the alphabet very slowly in this, like, disembodied, weird voice. Like, A, B, C, D. And I flipped the fuck out. And I was like, get away from me. What the fuck? What are you doing? Like, and I was like, you know, I started, like, screaming in French. And he was like, oh, my God, this is for a sociology project. I can't believe you reacted like that. And he, like, walked away. And I was in tears and shaking and had to be taken home. Um, And, like couldn't couldn't cope um and so that was that was the moment when my partner was like I think you might have to speak to someone about this because that's not like I think most people wouldn't react I mean it was weird and it was fucked up but most people would not have that that kind of reaction to it is that your biggest fear that something like that would happen It's one of my biggest fears, you know, but I I think because I I already felt like I was in a place where I could get shot, um, having this happen, I thought for sure he was going to pull out like a machine gun or something and be one of these weird, you know, university mass murderers. Um, so yeah, so, but then afterward as a follow up, I wrote to the sociology department and I was like, just so you know, like one of your students did that and it really freaked me out. And like, I know it's my own problem and my own PTSD from being in Paris, but, um, that's not cool and they were back and they were like oh yeah there's no there's no sociology project that would ask anyone to do that and even if there were you would need to sign a release form in advance like you would know that you were being part of a sociology project
0: so what does that mean the kid was just a bit weird
1: I guess I don't know if it was maybe like a fraternity prank I don't know no one ever found the answer but they're like you know we'll we'll look into this and escalate it
0: are you the type of person that would get starstruck with anybody <laughs> I feel
1: like you wouldn't uh, yeah no I totally would oh, would you <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah totally um yeah I mean I recently like a couple of years ago met Batsheva do you know Batsheva Hey, no. and I like couldn't speak oh yeah the one <laughs> that does the beautiful dresses yeah exactly yeah and I I was just so like starstruck by Batsheva and she's like you know we have friends in common she seemed like a lovely mm-hmm. down-to-earth person but like I just I think because I'm used to meeting people in the art world or in in the literature world, someone from fashion, I like didn't even know how to who did which version of myself to be and how to talk to her. I was just like, "Hi, your dresses are so pretty." <laughs> if you met
0: someone like Virginia Woolf, if Virginia Woolf came back from the
1: dead, would you get starstruck? <laughs> totally no, because I, I would know that like. The first person to do a PhD on her work was a woman called Ruth Gruber, who is like a young Jewish girl. And Wolf wrote like the most scathing things about her in her journal. Wolf was just like total anti-Semite and like totally dismissive of her. So I don't think that she would have much time for me. Just, are you Jewish? Just, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: are you? Do you practice?
1: Yeah. Probably more culturally Jewish than anything else. I mean, it, it's it was just Rosh Hashanah, so like, we dipped the apples in honey, um, and I have a mezuzah on my front door. Do you believe in a god? Um, I probably do. Uh I don't it's not like a Jewish god or anything. yeah yeah um, although like I do power. feel like sorry?
0: A higher power Uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean I'm
1: very religious on an airplane. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was but, actually yeah. gonna say that. I was like, Are you scared
0: of flying? Oh, what totally. are we talking about inside? Yeah, very
1: scared of flying. I'm not a good flyer and there's <laughs> there's like um a Jewish prayer for, for travel that I do when I fly. Um but yeah, it just—it's—it's it's like a feeling of belonging rather than anything else.
0: And you have a feeling that we all have a purpose in life.
1: Um, not really. Do you not? No, I don't know. I—I <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess everyone has their own, you know, stuff that makes them tick and makes them happy, and they should have the right, you know, to the pursuit of their own happiness, right? Their own life and liberty. Um I don't I don't know that we all have a purpose. I'm not sure what my purpose would be for Are you instance. not. No. <laughs> Do you not think it would be writing? Um but how much does it actually matter, you know? Like I I think <laughs> that what I have to say is interesting and important, but like I don't know, there's more important stuff to think about than than my writing. I don't I think I'm I'm probably too cynical to see let see my own work as like responding to some kind of higher power or like I have to do this <laughs> um, it's just the way that I spend my time, and I think it's important, but you know yeah not 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 the result of some like fatalistic oh, like, that's drive. interesting yeah. do you
0: believe in life after death i th-
1: i I don't know I think I saw a ghost one time and I've been yeah, scared yeah. of ghosts my entire life, um so I think I'm probably like irrationally ready to believe in something that we don't understand but like we don't know what happens afterward and I believe very strongly in in like the power of places like they feel like some Mm, places just have an energy to them and I don't know if that's the result Mm. of like electromagnetic energy or if they're like deep springs running beneath these places or just because they're, they're places where lots of people have lived and put energy into and cared about um but i think that it feels to me or maybe this is just me projecting that like there are certain places where it feels like the people who've been there before are not gone like they're somehow hey, yeah. still there um, I felt that so, strongly yeah. in the
0: feminist library. I always felt like Virginia Woolf, like the ghost of Virginia Woolf or something was in there. Did she
1: ever visit? Did she know about? No, it? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> she just decided once she yeah, died, she's go haunted, haunting <laughs> the Peckham feminist library.
0: So, how old was you? I? Want to know about this ghost story? How old yeah. were you when you saw the ghost? Oh, probably in my late twenties,
1: early thirties. Uh,
0: where were you? Uh, in
1: Paris. And in my what Garrett. did it look like? Um, it was a woman. Um it's possible I was asleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I was living in this like Chambre de Bonne at the top of a building in the fifth arrondissement in Paris. But soon after I moved in, I was like I just feel like there's something else here. Like I'm not I'm not alone. There's some someone else or something. A creepy else.
0: energy or was it? No, it nice wasn't creepy. Say- it was oh. like
1: just energy. It was like yeah. just some, some other energy besides <laughs> my own. Um, and so one night, like I just opened my eyes and there was a woman standing wow. by my bed. And then I, did you like, feel
0: cold or anything like that? No, 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 oh. no,
1: no. Have you had run-ins with ghosts? No, but Is my mom,
0: my mom sees, sees them and my granddad and. Like habitually? My mum used to, now she doesn't see them as regularly. Oh. So I'm God. very interested in this stuff.
1: Have you seen that BBC show Ghosts? No. It's so funny, you have to watch it. What it's is the it? Greatest show. It's um just like this show about this young couple who like inherit an old, you know, estate and they move in and it's inhabited by all these ghosts like from different time periods and they don't want them there because they've heard that they want to turn it into a hotel. Oh, so oh. it's just a very funny show. It's a funny conceit. I think they did an American version, oh, I'm but gonna I haven't look watched it.
0: Up. it. So Lauren, when you saw the, the figure then on your bed, mm-hmm. what was it brief or then it disappeared or what yeah. was, she, was she just freaked out? Oh, she was out? just standing
1: there and I wasn't freaked out because my whole thing about being afraid of ghosts was like, I think I was afraid of how I would react if I saw a ghost. But it was just non, it was like a non-event. It's just there's Was she smiling person there. or anything? No, she was, I don't, she didn't have like a particular expression. <laughs> she was just like there and I didn't see her face very well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I might have been sleeping but it was definitely an old timey woman in like you know an old timey dress oh. and like a hat um, and maybe <laughs> I wanted to see her I don't know but yeah it was, it was cool. <laughs> you know whose, whose work I love is Hilary Mantel's so I wrote about I wrote an essay after she sadly died about how how I had maybe seen this ghost and how much I love her work because it makes room for the maybe I did and maybe I didn't like for them both to be true so there's that kind of ambiguity is much more powerful I think than like that that thing of like there's no such thing as ghosts or they're absolutely our ghosts and they're all around us this thing of like I can't do that Lauren I can't live with that uncertainty it kills me (laughs) read her her giving up the ghost her collection is called giving up the ghost where she writes about seeing her deceased stepfather's ghost oh um, it's very very good and you'll see what I mean so she's just writing about the way that we can never be absolutely sure of what we've seen because you know memory is a funny thing and what we want to have happened can transform reality into something different <laughs> I'll
0: tell you what, I can just imagine my mum's voice now saying, I did, I swear I did, it's, it's true. I believe her, I And totally my dad, believe her. my dad is exactly the same like you, because my dad would would see the same spirits in our house, and he would always go, no, I think I dreamt it, or...
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, because, you know, like, most rational-minded people will be like, there's no yeah. such thing as ghosts, it's like, you know, nonsense. You're I'm, a rational minded I'm mind, not, right? I'm aware of the rational-minded people, and... And I, myself, am deeply irrational, probably because, you know, (laughs) it goes along with being incredibly neurotic and anxious. (laughs) Um, So, like, I can see intellectually the rational argument, but I also feel all this other stuff. Yeah. Are you a dreamer? You mean, do I have, like, do I dream at night?
0: No, are you, um are you grounded as a person or are you more floaty like Hmm. in my dreams and in the fantasy
1: world kind of thing? Uh, Probably again a combination of the two. I should say I'm a Libra (laughs) so like everything in moderation I think I'm probably by nature a dreamer but by virtue of the fact that I have to be like a functioning person in society and I have a mortgage (laughs) and a child and all of that like I'm pretty grounded.
0: Okay, so I asked you to pick two of your favourite books written by women writers or non binary writers. Um, so I want to get onto them. So the first one that you picked was Bodies of Work by Kafiaka, hmm. which is a collection of essays written by Acker, first published in 1996. Why do you love this book?
1: I okay. love this collection of essays um, because I love Acker's um, worldview. I just kind of love the way Kathy Acker thinks. Mm. Um, I love how it's full of notes, your book. I know, I love, I love this book so much, <laughs> I'm going to find it. Okay, she writes, let one of art criticism's languages be silence so that we can hear the sounds of the body, the winds and voices from far off shores, the sounds of the unknown. So Kathy Acker is trying to make room for the quieting of the critical voice that one of the languages of art criticism should be silenced to make room for whatever else.
0: Yeah, so she inspires you, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay, so I've got some interesting facts about Kathy here. So Kathy was highly intelligent. She taught herself Latin and reportedly read 30 books a week. <laughs> what do you think, Lauren? Do you think that's, we love you, Kathy, but that sounds a bit dodgy. That's like five uh, books a day. Yeah, no, I think,
1: how, what do we mean by read? How closely are we reading? Yeah, like
0: one chapter. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Also makes me think, no kids. <laughs> <laughs>
0: are you a big reader?
1: Yeah, as much as I can be, totally.
0: Yeah, uh, how many books would you say you read? <laughs>
1: Definitely not <laughs> 30, 30 books, books a week. week. <laughs> um, I read a lot of books, but again, like, what do we mean by reading? Like, I, I like to kind of dip in and out mm. of different things, and I find it hard to commit to a book. I probably have, like, you know, five different books on the go at any one time. Um, so it's been a really long time since I've read a book that's made me just, like, sit down and read. Um, And I miss that. I miss that love of reading that I used to have.
0: Um, How many books do you think you own?
1: Oh my god, thousands. Yeah, I have a massive (laughs) amount of books, like way too many. It's a problem.
0: Um, So when Kaffiaka did a short stint of teaching at San Francisco Art Institute, she would instruct her students to write from the point of orgasm Hmm. in order to lose control of the language. So Lauren, (laughs) I know you've taught literature and creative writing Mm. in all sorts of different universities, you know, New York, Paris, Liverpool. What would you say is the main piece of advice you would give your students or like the number one writing tip? Hmm.
1: I'm thinking on one hand of advice that I was given by one of my own teachers in an academic context who said, Read everything but I don't actually think that that's what I would pass on. I think what I've found very useful as a writer was that it's so important to just pay attention, to look around you and to write it down, even if it doesn't seem important to just let it all in. And then as you're writing, you sort of see where it takes you and maybe some stuff gets in and some stuff gets left out but that it's important to just remain in this state of, like, hyper-awareness because you never know what will be useful to you. So, yeah, probably rather mm. than reading everything, I'd say notice everything.
0: Would you say you're you're an observer? Definitely. Yeah. yeah Would you say all writers are?
1: I think that you probably have to be. You're yeah. probably not a very good writer if you're not yeah. a good observer.
0: Okay, so I want to talk about the second book that you picked. It's okay. The Art of Cruelty by Maggie Nelson which is Maggie Nelson's Reckoning on Representations of Cruelty and Violence in Art, and was published in 2011. Why did you pick this book?
1: I read it and was blown away by it. I mean, her erudition, her thoughtfulness, her humour. I just love the way Maggie Nelson thinks, and I love the way she writes. Mm. Um, I don't know how to say it, except that she's not satisfied with, like, the first thing that comes to mind. She's just an incredibly Mm. thoughtful writer and critic.
0: Yeah, There's a big passage in The Art of Cruelty and it's talking about what we talked about in terms of reading books. So it says, it was Kafka who wrote in a now famous letter that we ought to read only books that bite and sting us. If the book we are reading doesn't shake us awake like a blow on the skull, why bother reading it in the Mm. first place? What we need are books that hit us like a most painful misfortune, like the death of someone we loved more than we love ourselves. That makes us feel as though we have been banished to the woods far from any human presence like a suicide A book must be the axe for the frozen sea within us. God,
1: <laughs> calm down, Kafka, calm down. What are you currently reading? Um nothing that feels like yeah, the death a love you. One. <laughs> um no, I think, you know, there's a, somewhere else Kafka writes my whole body puts me on guard against each word and that's that's a kind of modus Mm. operandi that i can get behind i think that we have to be very very careful what kinds of languages are we reproducing unconsciously Mm. if we don't (laughs) put our whole body on guard against each word in my writing i can do Mm. my absolute utmost to be on watch and alert and make sure you know much like my heroine Maggie Nelson you know that I'm I'm not taking the easy way out or contenting myself with the first thought that comes to mind but like looking further and looking deeper
0: Mm. there's a passage in the book that goes we can dedicate our lives to ending suffering while acknowledging the first noble truth that life is suffering such paradoxes are ours to keep I love that Mm. Lauren just to wrap it up do you ever get baffled at how weird life is
1: (laughs) (laughs) every day oh my god summer all the time me too yeah it's not at all how you think it's gonna be and maybe that's you know the joy of it so Lauren
0: you know what Mm -hmm. bit we're at now I'm gonna do you a tarot reading oh my god I
1: love tarot cards okay so
0: you need to hold these these cards and put in your energy into them And think of a question that you want, or a little guidance, or ask your angels for a little help in in an area.
1: Is it going to be something that I am going to talk about afterward? Like, is it a private thing or a public thing, or what?
0: Okay, we'll make it private, but could you Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit of a juicy, Um, juicy gossip, what area uh, is it?
1: It's about my son. Okay. Okay, now shuffle them. I'm so bad at shuffling cards, I've never been able to do it properly. Take it up while you're doing it. Um... Could never get a job at a casino. <laughs> Just wouldn't wouldn't pass the audition. They'd be like, "Get out of here. Go write a book." <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah. Now find them out.
0: Okay. Okay. Now feel feel them and see which one pops out for you.
1: <laughs>
0: okay. Are we ready?
1: Yeah. We ready? Oh, what the heck, Lauren? Conscious oh. consumer. <laughs> what? You have the power to heal and help the world with your decision to buy only products and services that are ethical and environmentally friendly. This isn't a tarot card.
0: (laughs) Oh, no, but but does this relate to your son in any way? Um. (laughs) Oh, Lauren! All right. Okay. Okay. Should we do another one? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Come on, angels. You better be working. Come on.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Exercise to increase your energy. and <laughs> <For fuck's sake. laughs> Choose a fun and meaningful activity so that you'll look forward to exercising and it becomes its own reward. Actually, I'm going to a ballet class for the first time in like 20 years today. <laughs> well, okay. So I might have been tempted right. <laughs> to just be like tired and stay home, but like... This angel has told me to go to ballet.
0: To go to ballet and to be a conscious consumer. And with that, I hope you worms enjoyed this episode. Take good care of yourselves and see you on the next one. (laughs) Bye bye. If you like this episode, subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think. If you want to support us, you can donate via our website at www.wormsmagazine.com. Alternatively, get yourself the latest Worms Magazine. Thank you guys for supporting us. You keep us going and we love and appreciate every single one of you.